0: What's up? You're in the War Room. Ryan here as always today. Our guest is Colonel Dan Hooker. But first, let me ask you for a favor. Go to warroommedia.com. Sign up for the newsletter. That's right. That's where you get all of the updates and other stuff that we put out right there at warroommedia.com. Okay, our guest today is Colonel Dan Hooker. He has a book out, which we're going to talk about, of course, he spent 32 years in as an enlisted and then commissioned officer. Um, he's been all over the world, five combat tours, uh, worked at various levels, <laughs> as you can imagine, as a colonel does in the army, all the way up to the chief of staff of the army, as well as the National Security Council in the White House. He's taught at West Point and at the National War College. His book is called "The Good Captain: A Personal Memoir." of america at war okay let's get to the good captain colonel hooker welcome to the war room good morning it's great to be here yes it is a lovely day in the great state of texas for at least for i'm at it's getting a little warm again but we can't complain we finally got some rain um okay so as i mentioned in the introduction you've got a book out the good captain i always ask what's in a name uh some some famous guy somewhere said that, so I stole it from him. But so, what's give me the genesis of the details of the title of your book?
1: Great. So, well, I, I had a long military career, some thirty-two years, and and along the way, probably accrued you know a fair share of accolades. But I think the most meaningful for me happened when I was a young company commander in the mid nineteen eighties, and uh, we had just completed a a long field problem that began with a a night parachute drop and then about a 12 mile road march with uh, some heavy, heavy loads. And in the middle of an Alabama swamp, uh, in the dark, I happened upon a young soldier uh, and a young sergeant. Soldier was not happy about uh, what he had just gone through and he was complaining to the sergeant. Uh that that uh he, he he hated the company, he he hated the company commander, he just didn't want to be there. And the young sergeant said, Look, the CO, he's a he's a good captain. He's just trying to get you ready to go to war. So uh I'm paraphrasing here, he told the young soldier to shut up and and to move out. And I, I think really looking back, that was one of the most meaningful accolades uh that that I encountered in my long career. You know, it doesn't get much better than uh, to 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 have the combination of uh, of your non commissioned officers and your and your soldiers. I think that's what we all serve for, and it meant a lot to me. So that's why I chose it as the title.
0: So okay, so let's go back then. What made you want to join uh, the military? What did you all? Did you grow up a a child of uh, Army Brad or Navy Brad, or whatever the term is, or, or was it just something that you wanted to do on your on your own? Yeah, my
1: father had served three tours in Vietnam. He was a career uh, infantry officer. Uh, I didn't have any aspirations for a military career. Coming out of high school, uh, didn't really have a lot of money to go to college, so the GI Bill was an attractive option. Uh, I thought maybe some adventure and a little bit of discipline would be a good good thing for me. I thought a three-year enlistment, and then I'll go to college and get on with life. So without a, a lot more thinking than that, I, I embarked upon that voyage. Uh, uh, it turned into a 36-year a adventure, counting the Academy in uniform. So it set me on a path that uh, turned out to be very, very rewarding and meaningful for me.
0: Now, you joined around 75, is that right? 1975?
1: 1975, that's right.
0: right. So what was the feel of the country? Um, about enlisting amongst your friends and peers? Uh, were they like, hey, this is good? I know we're kind of, Vietnam's in the background, a lot of weird sentiment. Obviously, I'm born in 85, so this is all right back in history, I'm curious what was the feel, though, on the ground where you looked upon positively, negatively, or did no one really care?
1: Well, I can't say that military service was something that the American public looked up to. At that time, we, we had just come out of Vietnam, uh, embarked upon the the all-volunteer army. Uh, We were having difficulty recruiting quality young soldiers. Many were illiterate, if you can believe it. And even some young NCOs uh, had real difficulty reading and writing. So it was a troubled time, no doubt about it. Uh, And if you were a a sort of middle-class officers kid uh, joining the enlisted force at that time, there was some rough sledding for sure. It took some years for us to to fight our way out of that, but by the early '80s, we had begun to to turn the military around, and and it began to be something that the American public began to value again, which which was a good thing.
0: Now, you mentioned a minute ago that you went to West Point, and you also touched on kind of the um, the praise from getting what you got from the noncom. Maybe unpack for us who haven't been in the military. Um, obviously, I think we probably all understand kind of an officer versus an enlisted on on the titles, but Practically, how does that work in everyday life um, with how people are treated, how the interactions go, the respect that's given, or the respect that has to be earned?
1: Well, there's a, a certain amount of, uh, I think, respect that that accrues to the commissioned officer just by virtue of his or her rank and the uh, the the legal authorities you know that are that are given to officers. But at the end of the day, it's incumbent upon the young officer, I think, to earn, earn that respect and that approval. Uh, certainly, your soldiers and your sergeants don't expect you to know everything or to be perfect, but they they have a right to expect you to work hard, to try to set a good example. And as long as you are willing to share their hardships and their dangers and put your heart into it, you're, you're going to be just fine. It's just something that that really does have to be earned at the end of the day.
0: And when you're joining in 75 and going through this process of becoming an officer, um, you know, now I guess around 2000, at least and probably the nineties on some level names like Dick Winters, you know, Ronald Spears, those names became kind of household names in your time. Did y'all look back on kind of this world war II era and study how they did stuff, or is that more of a outside popular movement that, that we kind of look at that maybe internally isn't, talked about as much?
1: No, I, I think we did. I mean, amazingly, some World War II veterans were still on active duty. When I when I joined the military in 1975, you know, we had been brought up on TV series like uh, Rat Patrol and Combat, you know, when we were kids in the 60s. And I think we did look up to the World War II generation as, as sort of role models, uh, something to aspire to, uh band of brothers had not come along yet, but we all knew who Audie Murphy was. <laughs> and we, we acknowledged, you know, the amazing achievements of that generation. And, and at least for those of us in uniform, I think we wanted to be like them.
0: Yeah. And so in your career, we're going to get to some of the different spots that you've been, but maybe walk me through this transition of you're enlisted. It's not a career. You go to West Point. You come full time. What made you decide to go all in? Yeah.
1: Well, uh, as I say in the book, I, I began as a private, I, I was a, a young enlisted soldier, a paratrooper in the 82nd airborne division. And after a short while, I was encouraged to apply to the West Point Prep School, which is a one-year uh, course that's intended to provide an opportunity for, for bright young soldiers uh, to compete to, to get into the academy. I went to the prep school, that, that worked out well. And by the time I got to West Point, I I now had the academic preparation that I probably lacked coming right out of high school. I'd had a taste of the military with all of its problems. You know, the military life appealed to me. And after the investment of four years at the academy and then a minimum, you know, five-year commitment after that, uh, it set me really on the path towards a, a career. And by the time I had made that transition, from private to cadet to junior officer, put on captain's rank, I was pretty sure that, that this was something I wanted to do for a lifetime. We were in the Reagan administration. Funding was picking up. The military was improving and getting better. American people were were, were starting to look up to the military again. And, and it was an easy decision for me to remain in uniform.
0: Okay. Describe for us October 25th, 1983.
1: Well, that was the beginning of the invasion of Grenada. I have to say it was a thunderclap surprise uh, to us in the 82nd Airborne Division. It really was no advance warning. The, the Beirut bombing had happened only two days before. And I well recall, although the standard uh, at that time was to get our first battalion in the air in 18 hours, the first battalion actually was was airborne in only 12 hours. So very little time to prepare uh, or to plan. Uh, And the good news is we managed to rescue all of the American students and to sort of restore stability to the island. But in Grenada uncovered a a lot of problems uh, that needed to be addressed in terms of joint operations, how we trained, uh, and 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 it was uh, a laboratory for us to to learn to get better. Uh, there were a lot of problems associated with that operation, which we were able to iron out. I think you saw in the invasion of Panama that we had come a long, long way in only five or six years. So Grenada was a learning experience for all of us.
0: So you you say that um, it was kind of quick, and you you know you're kind of caught off guard. What were you doing leading up to this? Were you training for something else? Did, you said caught you caught off guard. So. What were you doing you know on october twenty fourth or twenty third or you know uh, September right? 15th?
1: well, we well, at that time we were still focused and oriented on the Soviet Union as the primary military threat. and so most of our training was was oriented that way. The previous year, my battalion had participated in the reforger exercise, which was a massive annual exercise where we, we flew some units from the States, but but mostly we exercised the, the huge U.S. Army Europe force, which existed at the time, almost a quarter million soldiers. So the expeditionary kind of operations that we conducted at Grenada were, were, uh, were new for us, not something that we had focused on.
0: And from a soldier standpoint, is that disorientating, thinking, okay, we're preparing or thinking about a potential conflict with the Soviets um, on some level, and then you have this radical shift and you kind of have to reorientate everything, or is it normal course of battle you've kind of been training and so therefore different environment on some level, but you can adapt pretty quickly? How What's that mentality like?
1: I think at the small unit level, it's much the same. Our problems were mostly at the big unit level and at trying to coordinate with other services, so we had a lot of friendly fire casualties, a lot of friction trying to 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 coordinate boundary changes between the army and the marines, uh, those sorts of things. We just had not practiced that in peacetime very much, and we had no opportunity to rehearse or really to plan before before the invasion of Grenada. So most of our problems fell into that basket.
0: How does the army help someone go through a friendly fire incident?
1: Yeah. It's not easy. Uh, uh, They're never completely avoidable really in any war or conflict. It really is a commander's nightmare. Uh, It hits the unit hard when it happens. Of course, you immediately try to walk the dog back, do a, a detailed after action review, try to figure out what went wrong and why it went wrong so that you can correct that the next time around. And of course, you learn by doing, so you get better every day in the middle of a combat operation. But friendly fire is a a tough one for sure, and it hits everyone very, very hard.
0: What surprised you about Grenada?
1: Well, (laughs) you know, really the complete absence of intelligence. I remember uh, we were asked to find out who the Spanish speakers were in our platoons, of course, they don't speak Spanish in Grenada. It's a Commonwealth country. Uh, we didn't have military topographical maps. So they, they used blow ups of Michelin tourist maps uh, with our superimposed military grid system that didn't work very well. We really had no idea where the American citizens and medical students on the island were. So we kept bumping into them. And uh, The almost complete lack of intelligence was the the biggest surprise, I think, for all of us. Uh, I don't think it's been repeated since we've gotten a lot better since those early days.
0: Is that from hubris? I mean, how does this lack of intelligence uh, in sending men to potentially die, how does that happen?
1: I think it was a combination of uh, a a real focus on uh, big unit war against the Soviet Union and then just the extreme haste with which the operation was mounted. It turned out there actually were maps of the island in a warehouse someplace in Tampa, I think. We just did not have time to pull on the system uh to uh, you know, take advantage of the resources that were were available. And that's sometimes inherent in the nature of this. You know, there had there had been some large scale executions down there. The, the read was there was chaos going on in the island and our our citizens were really at grave risk. So I under, I understand that. Sometimes you're not going to have the intelligence that you'd like to have in, in, a, in a rapid deployment unit and you just have to figure it out on the ground.
0: So what lessons, um, you know, you, you said that the, the intelligence all kind of cleaned up, um, but maybe some lessons for the general public on, um, when they look back at an event like uh, Grenada, that 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 perhaps um, we weren't there, we don't know. What what are some takeaways that we should glean yeah. from that?
1: Well, I think uh, maybe the biggest one is it's it's really important for the services to train together in peacetime. And I have to say, even to this very day, generally the services, although oh, they, they won't admit it, they're re- they're resistant to that idea. So if you're an army unit, and you'd like to train with Air Force close air support, it's going to be very, very difficult to set that up, or naval gunfire, or or even with, you know, sister marine units, we always seem to end up fighting shoulder to shoulder with the marines in wartime, but we almost never train with them in peacetime. And this is the services trying to be in a way insular, and to perhaps preserve their own freedom of action. But joint training is is so important. And you don't want to have to figure all that out on the battlefield. You'd really like to practice that beforehand.
0: Is that because, and this is from ignorance asking, um, when I think about World War II, you kind of have the European theater that's mainly army led. You have the Pacific theater that's mainly Marine led. Obviously, the Navy's kind of on both sides because they're moving people around and whatnot. Um, but is that kind of maybe where some of that started, which is you you have these large theaters of war and one fighting force is predominantly the one there leading it. Um, And so therefore, the kind of cross training is is kind of um, not thought to be as important.
1: I don't know if the roots of this problem uh, originate with our World War II experiences or not. Certainly, uh, we got a lot better at joint operations as the war went on. Uh, but I think the roots are are much much deeper than that. You know, the services don't want to be told what to do, and to some extent, when you do a joint operation, a service has to surrender control. A service component has to surrender control to a to a, a big joint headquarters, and there's a reluctance sometimes to do that. Uh, and I think you're gonna you're gonna face it in every war, and you have to face it head-on. I think General Schwarzkopf, probably because of his dominant personality, was able to suppress some of that in the Gulf War uh, and, and to really uh, fashion a sort of a joint approach to that campaign, which turned out to be very, very successful. But he was fought in many ways by the services over, over how he wanted to conduct that war.
0: So, based upon the rest of the stuff I'm about to get to in a second, Where does your time in Grenada rank um, as far as difficulty um, uh, of combat or or things that you saw?
1: Not a lot of combat after the first day or two in Grenada. So I wouldn't characterize it that way. I think for me, the most sobering takeaway was we weren't particularly skilled at, at, at coordinating and integrating all the different arms and services and we suffered a lot of, of friendly fire casualties. I think most of our killed in action were friendly fire. Certainly most of our wounded were friendly fire. Uh, and and I think that was a, a really sobering thing for me. That was my key takeaway. We've got to be a lot better than this the next time around. And were you? Yeah, we really were. By the end of the 80s, you know, we were a, uh, what we what we call a an NTC Army, we were an army where, you know, every major unit had to go through a very challenging combat training center rotation. We had stood those up in the in the 80s, the National Training Center for Heavy Forces, the Joint Readiness Training Center for Light Forces. And by by the time that the Gulf War rolled around, we were perhaps the best military we we had ever had in our history. Very well trained able to uh, do combined arms operations at the big unit level, maneuver and logistically support ourselves. We had come a long, long way in a short period of time.
0: Now, you were also in Rwanda. I was. And so how do you find yourself from Grenada to Rwanda? And what was that like?
1: Yeah, I had just arrived in Vicenza, Italy as a young major. I I think five days after I arrived with a wife who was seven months pregnant, I was asked to get on an airplane and go down. We were one of the first responders immediately after the Rwandan genocide. And our task was to try to uh, cope with a huge humanitarian crisis. Uh, Almost a million refugees had fled across the border and we're now sitting on the Rwandan Zairean border with really no food, water or, or medicine. And they were dying in huge numbers every day. So not a combat operation, but very challenging and stressful. Nonetheless, we fell in on uh, a large group of civilian uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, aid groups, relief groups, coordinated by uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And in a way, the U.S. military function as a super NGO trying to bring what we could to bear on the problem. Uh, and I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, within a matter of a few weeks, we were able to bring the daily death rate from about 6,000 a day down to about 400 a day, which is almost normal for a population of that size in that part of the world. So uh, it was a horrific aftermath for us to experience. I mean, what happened in, in Rwanda was really an epic tragedy and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we were not able to intervene and put a stop to that before it got out of control. But I think the, the refugee effort was, uh, was a shining success. I certainly learned a lot from that, that I was able to bring to bear in, in subsequent operations later in my career.
0: And it's striking because on some level, in Grenada, you have this friendly fire aspect. And then Rwanda, you kind of have that at a just unbelievable scale when you get there. Yeah. Is it hard to determine who's who, who's good, who's bad? Or is it pretty easy to get the lay of the land and who's on who's the good guys and who are the bad guys?
1: Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's ever easy. I mean, it's never easy. Uh, it looks easy on television and, and in movies, but but in fact, you're always trying to grope your way through the landscape and you're trying to find out uh, who are my friends, who are my enemies, uh, how is all of this organized, what are my priorities, what do I need to do now and tomorrow? That, that's a constant process, I think, that every military leader has to go through. Sometimes your systems help you, sometimes they're not very helpful, and you have to go out and, and find your own information and process it yourself. But but that's a that's a, a leadership function and a leadership attribute. So if you boil it all down, whether it's combat or some other kind of military operation, you're really in the problem solving business and your ability to identify uh, the contours of a problem and then bring resources to bear to solve it really determines whether you're gonna be successful or, or not successful.
0: How do you personally deal, how did you personally deal with what you saw there?
1: Well, I'd say it was a struggle. I mean, normal people, uh, you you know, aren't aren't equipped to deal with sort of a loss of life on an industrial scale. Um, And I think we all struggled a bit to try to come to terms with that. Our immediate problem, believe it or not, was how do we bury 6,000 people a day? And the, the, the ground was a lava flow, so you couldn't dig in it. Our bulldozers couldn't work in it. Um, Very quickly, you have a massive biohazard that's building up, as I think you can appreciate. And so pretty sobering to be told by the experts, our biggest problem right now is to, how to get these bodies underground so that tens of thousands of other people won't die. And For cultural reasons, we were not allowed to burn the bodies, so we had to figure out how to organize a convoy system and move them uh, a a great distance away so they could could be buried. Uh, Not anything I was prepared for in my military training courses, but again, a, a major problem that had to be solved on the ground. We worked through it okay, but you're right. There's a psychological cost to be paid when you're thrust into a situation like that with no notice and no preparation
0: yeah and and here you you say that it's it's got to be gut wrenching because on some level you want to be um respectful of the dead, but there's also practical ramifications that you just can't get around and and it's it's got to be a a tough spot to be um a soldier doing his job right because you you want to maybe step outside the box and kind of have a humanitarian but probably have to say okay listen, this is what we're being told the higher ups are saying this, we, we just kind of had to move, move through it and deal with the blowback as it comes or if it comes. And so how did the native Rwandans during that time, were they able to understand that tough decisions were having to be made like that, or were they kind of frustrated that things were going that way?
1: No, no. I think they understood the magnitude of the situation and they understood the stakes, um, and 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 you're right, you you're you're not comfortable uh, in a situation where you know you you don't even you're not even able to identify in most cases, you know who you're who you're burying uh, or where you're burying. you you'd you'd like to keep a record of all of that, but it just was not possible. Um, but with that many people dying every single day, I, I think the refugee population was well aware that this was a life or death situation and we were doing the best that we could. They did not give us any problems in, in that regard. Uh, they tried to be as helpful as they could uh, in, in supporting the effort, bringing the bodies out every day into a place where we could collect them and transport them. Um, pretty horrific for all concerned, but but really you don't have a lot of good choices in a situation like that.
0: Okay. So just, just for a second here, maybe lessons learned because our audience you don't know you don't know people are going through all sorts of things so you've seen friendly fire and then you've seen uh the the tragedy of rwanda which is um on the scale of rough things in life to see like those are going to be up there right those two those two types of things are gonna be there what advice would you give for people who are going through the sudden tragic loss of a loved one uh, we had on uh, late the day and her son was murdered and she so she talked about that. But just in general, how should people try to cope with um traumatic events like this? Not 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 obviously they won't be dealing with Rwanda per se, but in their own life, a, a microcosm of that how should they try to push through and deal with this?
1: Yeah, I'd be I'd be cautious in trying to proffer advice to anyone living through a tragedy because I think it's unique for every everyone. Um In the context of the military profession, I think it's helpful to teach our young soldiers and our young leaders, look, this is a hard world you're entering and you're gonna see some tragedy. You're gonna see some hard things and some bad things. You're probably gonna suffer loss and you need to understand that that's the world that you are embarking upon and you need to mentally prepare yourself for that. Um, And you need to think about uh, how you're gonna cope with that in advance draw on the strength of your your friends and your fellow soldiers uh, and concentrate on what you can do to mitigate the damage uh, and reduce the damage and keep the level of suffering as minimal as you possibly can. Those are things that you can do uh, to try to cope with the situation. But I I would never try to tell anyone that it doesn't come at a price or a cost because clearly it does.
0: Absolutely. You can't. can't. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the the maybe the problem that we've had um, with some of these larger conversations is I just you know grab yourself by your bootstraps and grit it up and uh, move forward. It's like well that's just not that's not practical. But um, I agree that there is a sense of which um, community friends loved ones coming around you, helping you take one step at a time and and, and you know trying to think through about you know what happened or, or you know how you lost a loved one or where it might be and, and moving forward. So okay. Tell me where you were September 11th, 2001. I was working in the Pentagon.
1: I was the aide-de-camp to the Secretary of the Army, Tom White, great American. Uh, We had just seen the the Twin Towers attacked. Uh, He had a meeting uh, at a location just outside the Pentagon with the Reserve Forces Policy Board uh, he decided he probably ought to keep that meeting. It was, it was not thought that there was a threat to the Pentagon. And and as we were at the Army Navy Country Club, about a mile or two away, we saw the plane fly right over, over our heads and disappear behind a hill and crash into the Pentagon. So we immediately returned, uh, entered the building, went went into the Army Operations Center, which is about three floors below ground level and for the rest of the day attempted to uh you know, respond to this to this tragedy the army chief of staff was on international travel as was the chairman of the joint chiefs so it was a a pretty hectic pretty hectic day and i describe it in some detail in the in the book uh i have to say it was a it was a stunning event that was just so f- far outside the bounds of of our experience or what we could imagine that in a way we were all stunned from the president on down um but you know we were able to uh sort of get back on our feet again and it it's remarkable if you think about it how quickly the system began to respond so we had soldiers and air units in motion within a week or 10 days to go to afghanistan uh our system was intact our command and control was intact our allies came online um, the nation really rallied and came together, but um, in many ways, probably the single most eventful and memorable and tragic day in my career, for sure.
0: So you have this three events we've highlighted here. Um, one, you're thrust into, or but the first two, you're, you're thrust into from from the outside. Uh, this one, you're you're on the inside, and the outside comes to you. Right. Um, obviously the. Factor of disorientation because of your proximity to the Pentagon and all that is is going to make things even more um, um, intimate. Um, but what is that like? That feeling of we're being attacked versus maybe we're being attacked in Grenada or these people yeah. being attacked in Rwanda. What's the difference for for you?
1: Well, you don't you don't expect to suffer a catastrophic attack in the nation's capital, and so for the first 30 minutes or so, uh, I think you're just trying to understand what's happened. The first question that we ask ourselves was, okay, what exactly has happened to us? If you'll recall, there were all sorts of reports, many incorrect, but but some accurate, that there were other planes in the air that had been hijacked. We were trying to put every commercial flight on the ground, which is a mammoth undertaking, trying to raise the alert level of our forces all around the world. Um, So you're just trying to understand what's, what has happened to us and what do we need to do in the next 60 minutes in the, in the next, you know, two hours, what do we need to do today? What do we need to say to the American people today? And then what do we need to do tomorrow and in the next week to come? And and you begin to get your arms around the problem that way, I think uh and you begin to you begin to work the problem. And we we knew very, very quickly who, who had carried out the attack and where at least the nerve center was located. We knew it was ultimately Osama bin Laden that he was located in Afghanistan. So that was a problem that we could address. Number, number one, of course, we needed to get the nation, and not just the army, but all the military and the entire government. We needed to get the the nation on a footing to protect itself in the event that there would be further attacks uh, in the next you know hours or days. And then we needed to figure out what we were going to do about it with respect to those who had launched the attack. And I think those reactions were pretty timely and pretty quick.
0: Is there a hierarchy of... Targets, troops, people. Obviously, we got the president. We, you know, but beyond that, are you going through like, oh my gosh, we have people in country X or this spot X that were the nuclear weapons. We have to secure this, or is it kind of like a an all call, like, hey, everyone, just harden up.
1: I think it's more the latter. I think the word went out immediately. Everybody, raise your alert level. Everybody, put force protection measures in place everybody gets serious about access control and in some ways you might have actually overdid it, but, but that's understandable as well. And we, we remained locked down for many weeks after that. Travel was a lot more difficult uh, as we put measures in place to protect against a a repeat of the, of the attack. Uh, So yeah, all of that's going on at the same time. Meanwhile, the military planning system, the joint planning system is underway uh, because a rapid and immediate and forceful response was clearly necessary, and from the president on down, everybody was focused on that, and uh, and that was done remarkably quickly, and and I would say, in many ways, remarkably successfully. Um, we certainly weren't able to target and take out Osama bin Laden, but but the haven for Al Qaeda in Afghanistan was was solved really pretty quickly. It, Taliban were routed, Al-Qaeda were routed and chased out of the country in short order. And that was a remarkable achievement at the
0: time. Was there a thought that this was a a distraction? Like, I mean, obviously, it's a large scale attack, but this is a distraction for something else that is lurking behind a curtain that we've yet to see.
1: No, I don't think so. I, I, I think it was acknowledged at the time that this was a major, major strike that had been carried out by these terrorist organizations. And uh, I don't recall anyone describing it as a distraction. It was the it was the front burner, top priority problem to solve, and everybody got behind that.
0: Yeah, and I don't mean to diminish it by any way. I'm just curious, like you know, if you guys are sitting there strategy, like, what if what if this was just to focus our attention here while something more catastrophic were to come down? So not to not to minimize what happened on nine eleven, of course.
1: No, hard, hard to imagine something more catastrophic than nine eleven.
0: Yeah, well. You know, I, I've often wondered about um large scale catastrophic incidents um being used as a diversion. You don't you'll see that, but I've wondered um, you know, if, if if from a military standpoint, if that's a concern that you draw everyone's attention over here so that you can actually go do whatever it is that you're looking to do over there. So um but anyways, um so post nine eleven, obviously we go to Afghanistan. So let's kind of put that, that time stamp in time, from a U.S. standpoint, what did we do right and wrong before 9-11, and what did we do right and wrong after 9-11? Well, I
1: think we did a lot of things wrong before 9-11. There were plenty of indicators, the USS Cole, the embassy bombings. We knew there were many terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. We had, had an opportunity, I think, to focus on that problem and to take action and to uh, uh, deal with that threat or that challenge. And we missed those opportunities. I think at the end of the Clinton administration, the government was distracted. Certainly the administration was distracted by the Monica Lewinsky scandal and some other things. The The Bush 43, administration took some time to get itself organized it's not often recognized that because of the confirmation process it's it's difficult to get your national security team in place quickly so even 10 months into the administration there were a number of key posts that that were still unfilled uh, even even so uh, there were there were those inside the system who were well aware that this was a mortal threat. And I, I think it's fair to say uh, that at the highest levels, this threat wasn't, wasn't acknowledged and uh, and addressed in the way that it could have been and should have been either in the last year of the Clinton administration or the first year of the Bush 43 administration. And we paid a heavy price for that.
0: Yeah, we've had Rick Prado on. Um, we'll link to that in the show notes if listeners want to talk, uh, hear his talk about uh, bin Laden. Um, and uh, you know his his tie to the task force there. Okay, um so ultimately where do we stand today, right? So we're 22 years removed from 9-11, a lot's changed in the world. Um, you know, we, we've been in Iraq, been in Afghanistan. Um where does the US military sit today?
1: Yeah, great question. Um well, there's been, I think, a conceptual acknowledgment and understanding that that we have moved from an era of sort of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency into an an era or return to an era of great power competition but in some ways i have to say i don't i don't think we've been uh, quick enough to adapt to that reality so what do i mean by that well as we refashioned for sure our our land forces in the global war on terrorism. You know, we we took down a lot of our heavy forces, a lot of our artillery, a lot of our tank forces. Uh, We eliminated air defense, you know, from army divisions. And we began to talk about great power competition in 2015 or 2016, but in my opinion, We've not corrected those deficiencies. So we're focused a lot on what we think we wanna field in the 2030s, but we've not regained those capabilities that are important for right now and tomorrow. Uh, in, in some of my publications, I've tried to make the point that you know, a military that's postured to win in 2035 is, is great, but it's not particularly relevant if it's defeated in 2025. And with with Russia, with China, with North Korea and with Iran still remaining very much on the radar screen, I think we need to get more serious about regaining those lost capabilities and then raising our ability to fight jointly to another level. We still have many of these same problems. Army units don't really train with Air Force units and close air support and air interdiction as an example. The special operations community is sort of walled off from the conventional force. So almost never trained together. These are the kind of things, the nuts and bolts, if you will, that I I wish we would pay more attention to right now because uh, the the world remains a dangerous place. And as we see in Ukraine and as we could see in the Indo-Pacific region any day now, we could be called upon to do some big, big things. I'm just not sure we're ready to do that.
0: So, we recently had on Noam Chomsky, and he argued that um, he doesn't think that China is actually changing their stance on the one China policy and looking to invade Taiwan. But you seem to, we had on General Spalding, who said, as soon as October, we might get see a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Us sitting here, how do we try to read the tea, tea leaves to figure out what might be coming?
1: Yeah, look, I think if you're a military planner, it's incumbent on you to be prepared. Uh, to deal with the major threat, uh, you can't sit, you know, inside the the Chinese government and and say that you know what they will or they won't do. We we, we know what they want to do. We know we think we know what they're capable of doing, and I think we have to plan and posture against that reality. Uh, when people tell me they know what Putin is going to do or or they knew what Xi is going to do, I, I I just say, listen, there's there's just no way you can know. So you have to prepare for the biggest threats to your vital interests. It's incumbent on us to do that right now. Now, the good news is we have a lot going for us. We've got a, a very, despite what you hear in some corners or circles, we've got a dominant Air Force, we've got a dominant Navy, uh, the Army less so, but, but in the Pacific is in particular, is not, not really a land theater so much as it is a maritime and air and space theater China is surrounded by a lot of countries that are worried about it, and they are militarily significant powers. Think about it, Japan, Australia, Vietnam, um, Indonesia, the Philippines, India. When you add it all up, it's a pretty formidable array. None of them want to be invaded or occupied by China. So you have the makings of a real traditional balance of power system there. With the United States providing sort of space, intelligence, air, and maritime power to balance off against China. I think we're in good shape as long as our allies and partners cooperate and we approach the problem with a firm resolve. Um, we, we remain far and away the greatest economic and military power on the planet. We just have to act like it, I suppose is how I would put it.
0: Okay. All right. The Good Captain, again, is the book. We'll link to that in the show notes. Anywhere else you want us to send listeners to or um, social media websites like that?
1: No, I, I don't think so. The book's available on Amazon. Uh, if, you, if you're interested in a view both from the trenches and then sort of from the high level policy strategy point of view on all the major conflicts that we've been engaged in, From the early 80s, you know, up up through the end of Iraq and Afghanistan, I think you'll find it a worthwhile read.
0: All right, Colonel, thank you for your time today and uh, best of luck on the book. A great pleasure. Thank you. All right. That is Colonel Dan Hooker on The War Room. Let me know what you think at warroommedia.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as we covered some touchy subjects, of course, today. Um, Anytime you talk about combat, of course, you're going to touch on something that is a little bit sensitive. So, love to hear your thoughts, warroommedia.com.